longeth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. You alone are my strength, my shield, to you alone are my spirit yield. You're my friend and you are my brother even though you are a king. I love you more than any other else, much more than anything. You alone are my strength, my shield, for you I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver and the apple of my eye. You alone are my strength, my shield to you. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Artis. And thanks, Dean, for filling in for David today. We're in 1 Corinthians. We started 1 Corinthians last week, did an overview of the book, and talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Today it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, is what we're going to be studying today, 1 Corinthians 4. 1 verses 4 to 9. Have you ever had a friend or family member or spouse who consistently did the wrong thing? Like they consistently made the wrong decision. They consistently, you wish you could just grab them by the throat and shake some sense into them. Anyone in your life like that? If there isn't anyone in your life you're like that, maybe you are that person. <laughs> Sometimes I've been that person. I'll admit it. I've made wrong decisions, and I've known people who've wanted to grab me by the throat and shake me. And while it would make us feel better to do that, it doesn't quite fix the situation, unfortunately. Paul is writing to a whole church that consistently does the wrong thing. They consistently make the wrong decision, and they're proud about it. Last week when we talked about Corinth, we said that if you took New York 
Los Angeles, and Las Vegas, and combine them together in one town, that would be the city of Corinth that Paul is writing to. They are a church that instead of pursuing holy lives, are embracing their culture. Instead of valuing their brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking unity, they're dividing over small points of doctrine and which preacher they like listening to better. Instead of living pure lives, they are pursuing all sorts of immorality that would cause us to blush if we said it here. So Paul picks up his pen to write a pretty harsh letter to these people in Corinth. But until he writes these things, he first starts by reminding the Corinthians who they are. They are the church of God, sanctified, called to be his holy people. That was what we studied last week, and we talked about how anyone can be sanctified. This week, he's going to remind them about God's grace, a truth that we can all use a daily reminder of. It's pretty amazing that when he is approaching them of all the things they're doing wrong, all the ways that they're living against God, he first reminds them of God's grace. He explains to the Corinthians six things which God's grace brings. This is not an all-encompassing portion of Scripture. It's not an all-encompassing sermon. God's grace brings us more than six things. But based on this passage, six things. And I hope sometime when you have time, or maybe when you don't, and you're all stressed or struggling, you can take some time and think about all the things that God's grace has brought into your life. So let's read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. Paul says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the one who called us into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord. You are the one who keeps us in that fellowship. And you are the one who proves the truth of that fellowship over and over and over and over again. Thank you for your grace that though we are sinners, you have saved us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the gracious gift in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, help us to live according to that gift. Remind us of that gift every single day. Remind us of your grace every single day so that we can turn around and show it to others as well. Teach us what that means. Lord, as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So what does God's grace bring? First off, Paul says that God's grace brings salvation. Salvation. Paul talks about the grace given us in Christ Jesus in verse 4. We know who we were before Christ. Even if we don't remember the time, At the time when we accepted Christ, perhaps we accepted him as a kid. We don't remember who we were blatantly in our minds, but we know who we were because we know who we would be without Christ. As the phrase goes, there but for the grace of God, 
go I. Paul reflects on our state before and without Christ in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We don't deserve our salvation. None of us do. If any of us stood up and say, you know, I deserve to be saved by God, or if we stood up and said, you know, I have earned my salvation, it shows that we have not understood our salvation. We have not understood who God is and who we are. So let's reflect. God is a holy God. He is perfection himself. And as a holy God, he cannot have any imperfection around him. His holiness drives all sin away. Unfortunately, we are not God. We were all born sinful. Every single person coming from their womb is sinful through and through. And not only that, are we born sinful, but we all willingly choose to follow in the sinful path every single day. So picture some kids, they're getting unruly inside the house, and their mom sends them outside to play. And she tells them, there's a big mud puddle. Do not jump in the mud puddle. Don't do it. And of course, what do the kids do? They jump in the mud puddle. They're covered head to foot. Mud is smeared around their hair, all different sorts of places. Every part of their body is covered with mud. And they got these big grins on their face. And they come to their house. They're about to walk inside. Mud is dripping off them as they track it up to the porch. Corbin, what does their mom tell them? Hose yourself off. Good. You all agree with the mom says that? Yeah. My mom probably would have said, you're not coming into this house unless you clean yourself off. It's not going to happen. That's us. We are those kids who've gone off and played in the mud, completely covered ourselves with sin, and we cannot come in to the house unless we are clean. Well, those kids, they go out to the garden hose, and they hose themselves off, and they hose themselves off, and they hose themselves off. And unfortunately, there is nothing they can do to get that mud off. They use soap. They scrub each other. They try to burn it off, cut it off, do whatever they can, but nothing is taking that mud off. And they look to the horizon, and the sun is setting. And they're doomed to spending the night outside because the mud is not going off. And that was their own decision. Now, you might say, that's a horrible mom. For That's not the point. It's just an illustration. That is us. The mud of sin is seeped, baked into us, and there is nothing that we can do to remove it. It is stuck to us, seeped into our soul, and we're in the danger of being stuck outside for all of eternity because of who we are. And that's where God's grace comes in. Later in this letter to the Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about their sinful lives before Christ. 
And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth and lived among us, among our filth and our sin, in the mud, but miraculously never taken by it, never getting sinful himself. And he died on the cross to purify us from that sin. But not only does he purify us, not only does he wash us clean, but in him he earns our forgiveness and declares us completely righteous. So we're not just sinless, but we are righteous in Christ. And so therefore through him we have a way to approach God without being consumed or driven away. We are able to have a personal relationship that gives us hope, joy, and peace in him. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his gracious gift. And all we have to turn to and say, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. Save me. You're the only way. This is our salvation. We should have been driven away, but in Christ, we are brought close. What else does God's grace bring? Well, after saving us, Paul says that God's grace equips us to live the Christian life. His grace brings spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 1.5, Paul writes, For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Later in Corinthians, in chapters 12 to 14, Paul is going to dive into the spiritual gifts. So we're going to spend some time on that because we're working our way through 1 Corinthians, but we're, going to be, we're not going to be studying those passages today. So I have to give you a brief tour of the spiritual gifts before we mine the treasure later on. Immediately when someone turns to Jesus in faith, they make that confession, they believe in their heart, the Holy Spirit's given to them. And Jesus explains the purpose of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit purifies, he reveals, he unifies. The Holy Spirit provides evidence of God's presence in our life. He guides his people, he gives assurance, it strengthens, it power, empowers, and it gives what we call gifts spiritual gifts. These gifts are briefly mentioned in 1 Peter 4. They're talked about in Romans 12. They're uh, talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. If we wanted a brief list of those gifts, we could find it uh, in Romans chapter 12 uh, that I should just tell you right now. Romans, talks, Romans 12 talks about prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. A simple search uh, on Google will show that a lot of people are obsessed over spiritual gifts right now. There's, a, there's a, a hunger to know what those spiritual gifts are. There's actually a website called spiritualgiftstest.com which details 19 spiritual gifts in the Bible and it gives you a test you can take online and figure out what your spiritual gifts are. Unfortunately, this hunger and obsession causes many people to forget what the spiritual gifts are actually for. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. 
And first, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. These gifts are given for us in order to glorify God and to encourage the body. It's like God, when we turn to him in faith and we're saved, he places us, we're part of the body of Christ, we're literally brothers and sisters with all those other Christians and we don't know how to live now because we're starting a completely new life and God gives us a toolbox in our hand and says, here's the toolbox, everything you need for life and godliness. Take it, use it, and glorify me and encourage the body with it. That's what those gifts are for. The point isn't what the gift is. The point is the result of the gift. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.5 that the Corinthian church had the gifts of speech and the gifts of knowledge, but they were not using those gifts rightly. They were not glorifying the God or encouraging the church. They were saying, look at me, what I can do. Look what I can do. I'm great. Look at me. Look what I can do. Huh? Yep. Aren't I great? Aren't I great? That's what they were doing. When God in his grace gives us a gift, we are to use that gift, not for ourselves, but to glorify him and encourage his church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. The toolbox. We take it, we use it. Two things, final notes on this. First, the spiritual gifts that God gives are not permanent. They are not permanent. It's one thing I don't like about spiritual gifts tests. In scripture, when you see God giving gifts to his people, he gives them to specific people at specific times so they can accomplish his plan, glorifying him and encouraging his church at that moment. After a time, he can take that gift away and give another gift in his place. I know someone who majority of her life was not a teacher, but there was a point in life where God called her to step up and teach. And she was able to do it amazingly. And then that season of her life closed and she doesn't have the gift of teaching it again. Because God wanted, she had a purpose for her at that point, gifted her for it, and then now she's doing something else. Gifts are not permanent. They're things that God gives to accomplish his plan, to glorify him, and to encourage the church at that moment of time. Second of the time, most of the time in the New Testament, it was the church members recognizing gifts in each other and encouraging each other to give him, use them. It was not one person standing up and declaring, I have this gift, I have the gift of mercy, and I need to use it today. I have the gift of teaching, and I need to use it today. It was the church gathering around and looking to someone and saying, you know what? I see this in you. How about you use it to encourage us in this point in time? So, in some, if someone comes to you and says they see something special in you or encourage you to do something that's not necessarily in your character or as some people have told me, in my gifting, don't, don't push them away. Pray about it and see if God possibly has a ministry for you in that area at this period of time. It's not like the rest of your life. It's just at this period of time. And everyone inside saying is, no! God in his grace provides salvation. God in his grace provides spiritual gifts. Third, God in his grace provides confirmation in belief. And this is actually through his work of the spiritual gifts as well. 1 Corinthians 1.6 Paul writes, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Let's read that in context. 
Verse 5, for in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. The spiritual gifts that God gave were evidence to the Corinthians of that their faith was real, that God was who he said he was, that their salvation was a fact. There are some times that spiritual gifts are called sign gifts because God uses them to confirm the truth of his message. The phrase comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Tongues then are a sign not but for, for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So it's sign gifts. Lots of people will lump tongues, the ability to speak another language, prophesy, healing, all this uh, as sign gifts. But the point was never the spiritual gift that was given. As I said, the point was the result, glorifying God and encouraging the body. Spiritual gifts bring confirmation to us, a sign, no matter what they are, that something has changed within us. If we think about belief, faith, it always needs confirmation. Consider what James says in James chapter 2, verse 17. James 2, 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Our faith demands evidence. No one can stand up here and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and live the rest of their life as if they weren't because their actions are screaming that they are a liar. Faith demands evidence. The, works, the, the evidence doesn't bring the faith, the salvation, but it is evidence of it. Spiritual gifts is an evidence. God gives us his spirit. He gives us his toolbox of things that we can use to glorify him and encourage the church. He puts things in the toolbox for us to uniquely live. And when, when we use it, the Holy Spirit changes us, empowering us to do things that we've never done before, whether it's showing mercy to someone when we're normally very legalistic or hard-nosed, whether it's giving our treasure away or praying for someone. When we see evidence of life change in ourselves or someone else, our belief, our faith is confirmed. I love membership class and I love talking to people about their stories of how they turned and gave their lives to Jesus Christ and I always ask the question, what is the evidence of God's work in your life? And lots of people talk about how their life has changed and how they've realized the sin and they've repented and they've completely different. Some people have radical stories, some people have just slow gradual stories and everyone also has shows evidence even though they may not say it and they may not realize they're saying it. But when they're talking to me, I see, hey, that's a spiritual gift that God gave you. That's a spiritual gift that God gave you, showing that there is confirmation that the Spirit is working in their life. When we see evidence of life change in ourselves or in someone else, our belief, our faith is confirmed, and that is a grace of God that we can seize onto saying, yes, I am saved. When doubts come in, God gives us grace that we can say, I am saved. I am his, and these are the proofs of it. God's grace brings salvation. It brings spiritual gifts. It brings confirmation and belief. It also brings hope, and this too is also a product of spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. God gives us the ability to live every single day and to not lack anything we need for that day through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And, and he does that for purpose. Not only does the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as he works in us and changes us, not only does it remind us of the truth of salvation, but he reminds us that Christ is coming again. 
and this yearning we have to be better and to do more and to serve him will be fulfilled. Every time we're able to do something that we weren't able to before, every time we're able to give someone else encouragement, every time we're generous or full of mercy, every time we make time in our busy schedule to help someone, every time when we say no to temptation, every time we speak differently than we did or live a holy life when we really didn't want to, every time that we're reminded of the God who empowers us, the one who gives us the grace to be who we are instead of who we were, in those moments, if we allow ourselves, we remember that God is calling us home and that one day our Savior will return and this need for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us will be fulfilled and we'll have new bodies worshiping and serving him forever. Paul writes in Titus 2, verses 2, Titus 2 verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is our heart's cry. When hard times we hit, we cry out, in the words of John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we have a truly amazing gift of this hope. I talked a lot about hope last year as we went through the Minor Prophets. And I've had a lot of conversations with people, and lots of times the conversations will turn to how we don't understand how people, cannot, how people can live without the hope of Jesus Christ. But people do. They try. They muddle through it. And that truth should cause us to be so grateful for God's grace. It's only because of him that we have hope, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming to take us home. God's grace brings salvation. God's grace brings spiritual gifts. God's grace brings confirmation in life, uh, confirmation belief. It brings hope. Fifth, God's grace brings confirmation in life brings confirmation in life. It's a weird way of saying this, so hear me out. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, He, speaking of Jesus or God, will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my translation here, the New International Version, says keeping you firm to the end. That word keeping firm is the same word for confirm in verse 6. Confirming testimony, same verb as keeping you firm to the end. So I decided to flesh that verse out in my outline. Confirming our life. I like the concept of confirmation. When God confirms a testimony, he is showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that that testimony is true. So when God confirms our life, when he keeps us firm to the end, it means he's keeping our life in line with the truth, showing that our life is absolutely true with what we say we are. We're not the person who says, I'm a Christian, and all the actions show that he is not. But in, with God, we are the person that says, I'm a Christian, and our actions show. Through his grace, we are able to live our life so that we will be blameless in the day when Christ calls us home. It's a big deal, this concept of blamelessness. It's found throughout the epistles. Lots of times it's referring to leaders of the church that they are, whether they're elder or deacon, they are called to be blameless, but it's universally applied other places to anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ that we're called to be blameless. What does it mean? It means that no one can bring a charge against us. When Christ calls us home and one day we stand before the judgment seat of God, God will declare us 
blameless on that day because of Christ's death, not because of anything we've done. We know we're sinners, but because of Christ's death, he calls us blameless. Nothing can bring a charge, no one can bring a charge against us. That is grace. But Paul says that not only on that day when we're called home are we declared blameless, but today when we live our life, we are declared blameless. God's grace keeps us blameless in this life. Doesn't mean we're not gonna sin anymore because we're all gonna sin. It means that no one can bring a charge against us. It means that we don't have any secret sins. When we do commit a sin, we own up to it and we make it right. And it's not natural. How many people want to air their dirty laundry before the world? No one? Anyone? No one? No one? No. Uh uh. That's not natural for us. It's not natural to do it. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we will, through God's grace, seek to live lives that are true to who we are to confirm every moment that we live, that we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we owe everything to him, which means that when we do something wrong, we will confess it, not just in our closet between us and God, but we'll confess it to brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll make it open. We will say, that is wrong and I should not have done it. We'll make restitution. We'll take discipline and we'll do what it takes to live in a way that no one can place any blame on it, on us. Because though they might look at us and say, yeah, that person did something, They said it was wrong and they made it right. That is blamelessness. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 15, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. It's not normal for people to live that way. It's only by God's grace that we can shine as stars in a night sky. God's grace brings salvation It brings spiritual gifts. It brings confirmation in belief. It brings hope. It brings confirmation in life. Finally, God's grace brings fellowship. God's grace brings fellowship. And this circles back to this concept of salvation. Let's read the whole passage again. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 to 9. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He also will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Being saved means that we are brought into fellowship. Fellowship with Jesus Christ, fellowship with the body of Christ, what we call the church. It's not a building, it's a group of people, as we all know. The word that's used for fellowship is a very special word in the New Testament. It's used 19 times. Uh, Those who want to know, it's koinonia, and it speaks fellowship. It, It talks about not just like coming together and being together, it talks about participation, mutual participation and sharing. So when we have fellowship with Jesus Christ, it means that we have participation and sharing in Jesus' life and death. It is ours as much as we are his. Paul talks about communion as an example of this participation and sharing in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we gave thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? We are participating in Christ's death and resurrection. So when we're saved, it's applied to our account. As as we live, we participate in his suffering. Philippians 3.10, 
I want to know Christ, Paul says. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Another illustration of this is found in baptism. When we baptize someone, we place them into the water and we bring them out. As Paul said, that we are buried with Christ in baptism, we're raised to walk in newness of life, showing that we are participating in Jesus' death and resurrection, participating in his life. What he did is applied to our account. There's a sharing that is going on. So when we think about participation with Christ, we can then move to participation in the body. It's the same understanding that we have fellowship, we have participation in each other's lives, we have sharing between us. A great example is the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts 2, 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Participation and sharing. The body of Christ coming together, not just to be together, but to live life together. Your life, my life, together, pushing each other to be more like Christ, sharing with those in need, fellowshipping. There's a yearning in the younger generation to be part of something. To be part of something. And they're going after all sorts of clubs. They're going after all sorts of online communities. They're going after love and relationships because they're yearning to be part of something. And we in the church of Jesus Christ have that gift that we are part of something where we don't have to feel alone, but we are one with other people, sharing and fellowshipping and participating a being, a belonging that we have. And that is a gift that God has given. God's grace being salvation, it brings spiritual gifts, it brings confirmation in belief, it brings hope, it brings confirmation in life, it brings fellowship. God in his grace has given us some pretty amazing things, not just in this passage, but all throughout scripture. I encourage you to take some time today and make a list of what God's grace has given you. So when days get long and hard times come, or if someone comes and questions you, what worth is it to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You can produce it for your benefit and theirs. And the next time you want to choke someone, Instead of doing that, remind them of God's grace. Bring the list out and push them to him. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for calling us your own even though we don't deserve it. And every single day providing evidence that we are your own. Giving us strength to live each day. Hope, joy, peace. Giving us the ability to forgive someone that we thought was unforgivable giving us the ability to change ways that we knew were wrong and to fight temptation, giving us so many things, Lord, from physical to spiritual to emotional to relational, Lord, you are the amazing God who gives good things. Thank you for your gifts, and may we not forget them. Amen.
Please join me in the last song. We're going